Amen. Good morning. You may be seated. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Such a blessing to have Brady and Nicole back, only to uh, lose Diana. I think next week we'll have the whole band back together again, though. It was a blessing as well last week to welcome four new members and their children to HHBC. If you have questions about membership or interest in learning more about HHBC and the path to membership, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to walk with you in that. Well, yesterday we all had a, a moment of silence and of reflection on the 20th anniversary of the attacks against our country, September 11th, 2001. We remember the heroes of that day, the first responders, the many who gave their lives in service to one another. We pray for the families who relive the scenes every year as the nation remembers. And like you, I had many feelings boil up in my heart as I remembered exactly where I was that day. And I saw those horrific images fill my television screen. I remember driving around that day, running errands in what felt like a blur in a daze. Like generations before mine that had watched events like the attack on Pearl Harbor, this was that moment for our generation. And anyone who is old enough remembers that day in vivid detail. And of course, our job as Christians, indeed our joy as Christians, even 20 years later, is to process these events and even those feelings through the lens of Scripture. And as I considered what to share with my Harrison Hills family on this solemn anniversary, there were many things that we could speak of. Of course, the many worldview applications are far-reaching. That's appropriate. The religion of Islam that was born and bred in the bowels of hell that has perpetuated such violence on the world and dragged millions to hell. We could dive into that. How to handle fear. What do we do with fear? All of these things we've spoken of over the past year. But what matters? What saves men? What can actually change a heart that would even perpetuate such an evil on society? What are we dogmatically focused on here at Harrison Hills? We seek to be a people who understand, who preach, and who proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only the Gospel that redeems fallen hearts that are bent on destruction. That's the euangelion. That's the good news. In a plan put into motion from the foundation of the world, Jesus left His throne in glory, coming as a human, being fully God and fully man, living a life of perfect righteousness that none of us could have lived. He defeated death on the cross. And the Father signaled His approval of that sacrifice by raising Him from the dead on the third day. And now as believers in Christ, we have His death applied to us, imputed to us, Jesus' death that we deserve to die. And equally, we are given His perfect life as well. His applied righteousness to our account, given to us as a positive righteousness that we might have something to offer our King on that day that we stand before Him. The Gospel proclaims that in Christ, God made a way for us to be reconciled to Him. Being able to simultaneously forgive sinners and uphold justice by giving us a substitute. Jesus taking our place. Taking the Father's wrath upon Himself. Now we might be called friends of God. Children of God. Because of what Christ has done. That's the Gospel. 
Or, to put it more simply in the words of John Newton, quote, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Close quote. This is the only message that can actually transform and make a new creation out of a fallen one. The Gospel does not fix up the heart that you have. Jesus Christ is not a patch job. That cloth would just shrink and tear. No, the old heart cannot contain the new wine of salvation. The old heart would burst in an instant to be infused with such a pure, foreign, alien righteousness. Nor can a gospel of works contain the new wine. It would be exposed for the charlatan gospel that it is. There's only one door. There's only one gate. And that way is narrow. And few find it. This is a message of peace to those who will heed it. The Prince of Peace will call you His own. You will have a brokered peace with an offended God that cannot be broken. You will no longer be a hireling or a worker, but will be called son and daughter. The Gospel is a message of great peace to those who will come to Him in repentance and faith. That's the euangelion. This is good news. But the existence of peace means that there must be a war from which to declare peace. Peace is not natural in this world. Peace must be strived for. The unnatural inclination of man is to war. To war against each other and to war against the very God who made them. They have made themselves enemies of God through wicked works. There can be no peace for that person. Them and their Creator. But the Prince of Peace stand before, between you and perfect justice, that person will most certainly perish. Anyone who falls on this stone, Jesus said, will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, if this does not sound like a God that you care for, if it does not sound like the God you came to when you repented, then you've come in the gate another way. You must go back. And come in the wicked gate. Go back and come in the narrow gate where we do not tell God what He is and how we will serve Him. We serve Him as He is. And we submit ourselves to this rule. To His rule. And if this sounds harsh or alarmist, then friend, you're skipping parts of your Bible. If this sounds extreme or intense, the consequences of sin of aircraft being flown into buildings. That's intense. The declared message that when received stops such events from happening is just as intense. And that's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't trifle or toy with His Gospel. The consequences of failing to heed are deadly here and in eternity. And as we look around our country, we have not learned the lessons of that tragic day. We continue to thumb our nose at our Maker. We are in such rebellion to our Creator that we now tell God that He doesn't even have the right to tell us what gender we are. But saints' judgment begins at the house of God. For a moment on 9-11 in the weeks to follow, the churches overflowed. They overflowed. And most of those people are nowhere to be found today. And that is an indictment upon the church. We cry out in response to 9-11, never forget, never forget, and yet we have forgotten. We have forgotten our first love. 
Paul told the church at Ephesus. We have failed to hold to correct doctrine and to drive out false teachers. We have forgotten. What if those who swarmed the doors of the church after 9-11 found the gospel waiting for them in hearty doses? No games, no buffoonery, no plain church to try and mimic the world. We have the answer. And many people today are just as afraid of a virus as they are and they were that clear blue morning, September 11th, 2001. But the message hasn't changed. The call is the same. If you're listening online this morning and you've never done that, stop the stream, stop the recording, and do it now. Don't wait. Amen? Amen. Well, we sum we summit an exciting mountain this week as we complete at long last the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we marked one of the greatest events in history. We joined the disciples as they were rushed out of Bethsaida Julius by Jesus as revolutionary fervor and this military messianic euphoria gripped the countryside with Jesus having fed the 25,000. Having spoke like no man spoke, having healed their bodies, Jesus was the whole package for these people, but for all the wrong reasons. The disciples were ripe for this kind of faulty thinking too, weren't they? And in fact, we found out that Jesus was very right to send them away. For they had not gained any insight about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened, Mark tells us. We watched as a violent storm gripped the Sea of Galilee. And as is so common with the disciples, they were caught out in the middle. We watched as the disciples groaned with agony as they rode against the fierce winds for 11 hours. And instead of commanding, peace be still, as Jesus had done before, he waits on the shore and he miraculously sees them and watches them from afar off. And he allows them to struggle. He allows the pain to enter their bodies through exertion and fear to enter into their minds and their hearts as they once again face death by drowning from the sea. It's not until the disciples had reached the end of themselves when their own physical strength would not, could not bring them through, that a figure appears on the water. And this is not an apparition. This is not a vision. This is no ghost or hallucination. And we need to pause on that point. Just like Jesus' resurrection, this event, Jesus walking on the water is physical. This is in person. And this bears saying here, as many fall into the danger of spiritualizing or allegorizing, when Scripture is meant to be read quite literally, unless it's clear that another reading is intended. Just as false teachers said that Jesus only rose in spirit, they claimed that Jesus walking on the water was also not necessarily physical, but carried allegorical or mystical meanings. It's none of that. Jesus walks out to His disciples in the flesh, just as He rose in the flesh. By this, First John writes, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Saying the same in Second John, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Paul tells Timothy, great indeed. Great, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That these events happened in the flesh matters, particularly when it comes to the resurrection, but in matters of walking on the water as well. By stripping the physicality from walking on the water or from the resurrection, we strip all evidential value from the event. If this is just a floating spirit, if it was not physical, then the claims associated with those miracles essentially vanish. This is a finer point of theology, but one that you must tuck away. The Gnostics who teach this have not gone away, though they go by many different names today. Jehovah's Witnesses teach this very heresy. They've not gone away. And here Jesus was at the boat in the flesh, in body. He was not floating above the water. He walked upon it. The very molecular structure of water in that moment was what its creator says it is. And if that be as solid as land, then that is what it is. And isn't it ironic that nature obeys him perfectly? The birds sing on cue for his glory. They do exactly what they're supposed to do, exactly what they were created to do. The Lord even thundered in reply to Job, who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its blanket and when I fixed its boundaries and set in place its bars and doors and I declared, you may come this far, but no farther. Here your proud waves must stop. Even nature obeys. It is only humans who shake their fists and wag their heads. Everything else is obeying as the commander commands. The Sea of Galilee last week was at the behest of its maker. The storm to challenge the disciples, that's God's storm. He's fully in control of the weather department. The molecular composition of water altering to hold its creator to walk upon it. It's done. It's all his. It's all his. Sometimes I know I need a fresh reminder of what it actually means for God to be God. Our own, our own fallen minds, they love to dethrone him in areas that don't fit what we want Him to be, that don't fit our own errant theology. Well, the old adage holds true that God created man in His image and man has been returning the favor ever since. But only God is God. We must take this away from our scene last week. We must see His sovereignty and we must see His control. We must see the obedience of creation to its Creator, and conversely, the incredible hardness of man's heart toward the lover of their souls. Yet despite that hardness of heart, despite the disciples learning nothing correctly from the loaves and the fishes, Jesus comes alongside their boat and He says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. But as we noted last week, a more accurate reading of this says, take courage. Do not be afraid. I am. What mercy does our Savior have when the disciples have no excuse at this point as they continue to misunderstand and to misapply even as the blinding light of living and eating and sleeping with Jesus shines around them? Even then, look at the mercy of our Savior. The I am comes alongside the boat. And He doesn't rebuke them harshly, but instead He does something that should take our breath away. And that should shake us to our core if we consider it. 
the I am gets in the boat with sinners, with those who are hard of heart. The disciples didn't find Jesus. Jesus found them in the storm. Weakened in mind and body and strength. He came alongside them. He got into the boat with them and he comforted them. Jesus doesn't lose a single one that the father gives him. And this is where our text picks up today. So with that, let's begin with our text. Mark 6, 53 through 56. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole region and began to carry here and there on their mats those who were sick to the place they heard he was. And wherever he was, entering villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were being saved from their sicknesses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close this sixth chapter of Mark, we ask, Holy Spirit, that You would attend and abide to Your Word. That You would show us what You would have us to learn today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, most of you who have been following our series through Mark know that we try to stick to Mark's telling of an event, don't we? Because it's his gospel, or more specifically, Peter's relaying to Mark. And the only time we really stray into another gospel's telling of a story, of which there are many, is if it gives us special light to the one that we're in. And that is precisely the case as we wrap up chapter 6 today. You know, many other scenes transpired, many other words were exchanged that Mark does not record, but for very good reason. For example, we're not privy to a most amazing scene of Peter walking on the water to Jesus last week, were we? And that's simply because this is Peter's telling. And Peter wishes for the focus to remain where it should, on the Savior, Jesus Christ. These were sermons given by Peter that Mark is recording. Had he told about himself walking on the water out to Jesus, that crowd would have been far more enamored with him than the one that we should be enamored with. And isn't it wonderful that the more mature someone becomes in their faith, the more the spirit of John the Baptist takes hold, that he must increase and I must decrease. That's what we see in Peter here. That's why there's no recording of Peter walking on the water in Mark. So we don't see that. We also are not privy to an amazing confession that took place in the boat. There was a title shift, no pun intended, that occurs amongst our disciples. An amazing scene. When Jesus gets into the boat, Mark does not show us the reaction of the disciples. But if we rotate that diamond very quickly to Matthew, no need to turn there, we'll put it on the screen. Matthew 14, 32-33, watch this. And when they got into the boat, they being Jesus and Peter, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped Him saying, You are truly God's Son. Something has just happened here. We've had a breakthrough, don't we? You are truly God's Son. You are the Messiah. They worship Jesus, and Jesus receives that worship, doesn't He? 
This is a pivotal confession. This is very similar to Peter at Caesarea Philippi to Jesus' question, who do people say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God, Peter proclaimed. This is pure worship to Jesus by the disciples. This wasn't wonder. This wasn't amazement. This wasn't bewilderment. We get all that from the crowds. There's none of that. No, the disciples have passed through that finally. They're through the amazement, through the bewilderment, through the wonder, and they are worshipers now of Jesus. They declare, you are the Son of God. They fell to their knees in worship. Why does Mark not record such an amazing confession? This sea change that's happening with the disciples. Again, a very simple answer if we consider Mark's intended audience. You know that Mark is writing to Romans primarily, isn't he? He's writing to Gentiles. And Mark wants Gentiles to know that Jesus is their Savior as well. He wants Gentiles and Romans to know that He did not just come to the lost sheep of Israel, but that they too have been grafted into the vine. And so how does Mark do this? Mark saves his big confession moment, his worshipful praise moment, not to be proclaimed by the disciples, by Jews. But he saves it for Mark 15. For a Roman centurion who is standing in front of a crucified Jesus. The veil having been torn in two. And when Jesus had breathed his last, this Gentile, this Roman centurion proclaimed, truly, this was the Son of God. That's why Mark omits the disciples' proclamation and confession from his gospel. He's writing to an audience that is going to see their confession come from one of their own. A Gentile's Gentile. A Roman centurion. Jesus saves those from every nation, tribe, and tongue. You and I are Gentiles. Sometimes we forget that. All the gospels are for us. But this gospel, the gospel of Mark, was written to us. We've been grafted in. Historically, geographically, religiously, we have more in common with the Roman centurion than we do with the disciples. And that makes our time in Mark that much more special, doesn't it? So with that, let's dive into our first verse. Verse 53. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. There's so much to see here. So it begins when they had crossed over. And too true, they did indeed cross over. But how did they cross over? But we have to pull out that gospel diamond again here once again and rotate it to John. I'll read it for you. John 6, verse 21. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Wow. This is what Albert Einstein would call a quantum leap. They went from the middle of the sea to instantly, immediately being at their destination on the western shore. Reality and location is what Jesus says it is. For anyone that's keeping count, we have at least five miracles in one scene. First was Jesus seeing the disciples through the storm, right? They were two miles out in a storm at night, no electricity. What can you see that's two miles away? Jesus then walking on the water. Peter then walking on the water. 
the wind and the waves ceasing as Jesus got into the boat and finally defying physics in a quantum leap by appearing instantly at their final destination. That's miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And if we include the feeding of the 25,000 after miracle yet again. And it won't stop there. We will see a pouring out of that again today as well. Well, back to our text. Where did the disciples and Jesus find themselves? Where did they immediately appear? Well, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. Now, this is quite interesting. I thought they were heading to Capernaum. And indeed, they were. But they find themselves at Gennesaret. The wind has clearly pushed them. So they missed what they thought was their destination. The wind had pushed them. Ah, but whose wind is it? Whose wind is it? Not only was it God's wind that put them there, but they supernaturally arrive at Gennesaret by means that they had no control over. But God did. Now, we won't pull more application out of that than the text allows, but please see the working of God in our circumstance. The guiding and the leading using both natural wind and supernatural wind. Jesus deploys them both to orchestrate the events in the lives of the disciples. They have found themselves at Gennesaret or Gennesar in the Hebrew. This area was a large plain. It was about three miles long by about one mile wide over on the western shore of Galilee, right between Capernaum and Tiberias, both cities you know. Certainly not where they were aiming for, but yet here they are. This area of Gennesaret was famous for being exceptionally fertile. In fact, Josephus even wrote about this area. He says, quote, there is not a plant which its fertile soil refuses to produce and its cultivators, in fact, grow every species, close quote. It was very green. It was very beautiful. So picture that in your mind. But a funny thing happening is happening all the while back on the other side of the sea where Jesus had miraculously fed the 25,000. Now, a quick look back to John's account in chapter 6. I'll read it for you. No need to turn there. Verses 22 through 25. On the next day, the crowd which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one. And that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. They're watching. Other small boats came from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Well, we've all kind of heard the song and the cat came back, right? Don't feed the cat. Well, these folks showed up again looking for another meal is really what they had done. But see how word travels here. This was not in the days of text messaging. Notice other small boats came from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Somehow, even if it was a messenger sent by land to go bring word back to the western side of the lake, word had already gotten there that the rabbi was here. And big things were happening. 
And a small flotilla of boats made its way from Tiberias over to Bethsaida Julius to see what all the fuss was. Now, to be fair, some commentators speculate as well that this was something of a taxi service. They knew that thousands were gathered over there and they would need a ride back home. Galilee Uber, I guess. It could be some of that as well. But regardless of the motive, this flotilla leaves this area. Knowing Jesus must have snuck off somehow and heads for the most logical place, Capernaum. Let's go to the man's home. But now we begin to see a true divergence of the crowd from the disciples, don't we? You know, so often at this point, the disciples were kind of along for the ride, weren't they? They were often just as deceived as the crowds were. And here that crowd is about to clamor after Jesus once again. But the disciples, as we saw in John, have crossed the Rubicon. While the crowds came with self-serving motives, once again, the disciples have now fallen at Jesus' feet. They've worshipped Him now as the Son of God. As we work back to our text now, verse 54, the crowds are going to dominate the scene once again, but let us not forget the disciples who are standing by this entire time who have undergone this transformation. And mean, meaning that the healings they're about to witness with the crowds, the teaching they're about to hear are coming through a different filter. They were now there for Jesus. For what? Not for what He could do for them, but because of who He was and indeed who He is. The lenses had been changed in their glasses. It all took on different, significant, and correct meaning. Now their understanding is not perfect going forward. None of ours is. Nor will it be until we're in glory. We're, seeing, we're going to see many times still in the future that show the disciples still they don't fully comprehend. But make no mistake, a change has occurred with them. Scales have fallen from their eyes. So don't forget the disciples as we look back at our scene with the crowd. Verse 54, And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized Him. Now this might seem like merely a report. And in fact, the remaining verses are actually a summary report by Mark. But this is packed with implication. Number one, what time is this happening? Well, it's somewhere toward the end of the fourth watch, right? The Roman fourth watch, not the Jewish third. So we're going to guess that this was happening around 5 a.m. And just as a side note, people do not sleep on the shoreline in these days. They were in their homes, yet here they are. So what do we do with that? Well, this gives us great color to what a tizzy this entire area was in. This was not isolated. Jesus had taken it by storm. Word had fully and completely gotten around. Military messianic fervor is in the air. The militia think that they found their guerrilla leader and the sick are going to be coming from everywhere. Those looking for some more of that heavenly manna. I have no doubt it was the best they'd ever tasted. What this tells us that people are sleeping on the shore at just the chance of catching a glimpse in an almost ironic, tragic language, our text says that they immediately recognized Him. But did they? Did they? Did they recognize Jesus? Yeah, they saw Him. But seeing they could not see. And hearing they could not hear. They knew it was Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I know Jesus. So says the majority of America. 
That's the name I use when I'm in trouble. That's who I'm supposed to pray to. Yeah, I know Jesus. As we have said before, the question is not, do you know Jesus? The question is, does Jesus know you? Does Jesus recognize you as one of His own? A prize for His own possession? All the crowds recognized Jesus. But how many of them did Jesus recognize? Yet we're going to watch Jesus move with compassion toward them. Great compassion. Verse 55. And ran about that whole region and began to carry here and there on their mats those who were sick to the place they heard He was. Well, what we're beginning here and the remainder of our text really is something of a summary report from Mark about the remainder of Jesus' Galilean ministry amongst the crowds. This scene is essentially happening as, as Jesus and His disciples are walking from Gennesaret to Capernaum. There was a flocking scene the entire way that culminate with Jesus in the synagogue of Capernaum dishing out one of His most famous sermons being the bread of life. But I want us to notice in our final verse, 56, as Mark completes this summary report, what wonderful, tragic things happen all in one. Verse 56, and wherever he was entering villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were being saved from their sicknesses. Well, there seems to be very little unique about this report unless we look closer. We find some very different elements. There's no teaching here. There's no dialogue. Mark is showing us once again, as he does in Mark, who Jesus is by what he does and not by what he says. But there's unique things here to see. Now, Jesus is moving all over rapidly. So there's nowhere in the Galilee area where he's not going. And they're laying the sick in the marketplace. Number one, you don't bring sick to the marketplace. If we're talking about lepers, which we no doubt were included in this sick, that's definitely a no-no, right? This tells us that Jesus' popularity has reached a fever pitch. It would never be higher than it is right now in this area. We're at peak capacity. They're sick, don't care, bring them into the marketplace even. Fever pitch. Word was everywhere and they came from everywhere. And they came to Jesus and they pled. They pled. Now my heart wants to rejoice at that report. Many were pleading at the feet of Jesus. But oh, the tragedy to get so close to Jesus that you even fall at His feet and yet you miss Him to recognize Him when you got out of the boat, but to not see him and we know that most would not we see something else unique that we've not seen amongst the crowd what are they trying to do what are they asking to do they are pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment now that's new where have we heard that before how about the woman with the issue of blood in chapter 5 Guess who has turned into quite the evangelist? Apparently the healed woman. Because now everyone isn't just trying to see him and touch him. Everyone wants to what? Grab that tassel. And Mark is making that connection here. That woman has been testifying and spreading the word of what happened to her. 
Now they're there for their healing, aren't they? But sadly, they sought out a temporary solution to what is in truth an eternal problem. There's nothing wrong with praying for healing. Yes and amen. But is it our highest good? Did they come seeking from Jesus a healing that would last? Or did they just seek a drink when He could have given them living water? He could have given them living water. Every one of these people that grabbed Jesus' tassel were healed, it said. But every one of them would die. Every one. Even the healing that Jesus Himself brought to all this crowd this day was temporary. It was temporary. And the very presence of Jesus' healing power presents a moment of choice for these people. James Edwards writes, quote, the physical blessings of Jesus are not an end in themselves, but a fork in the road. One branch of which leads to Jesus' final saving purpose. The other to a false understanding of Jesus as simply a wonder worker. Close quote. And we know that most would never truly see Jesus. Though they certainly recognized Him when He got off the boat. What a tragedy. Yet in the midst of that tragedy, just as Jesus knew the 25,000 He had just fed, they would not turn to Him, did they? Out of a well of love that is deeper than we can imagine, He pours out His common grace to all. He fed them all. There was no application required. There was no faith required. And here in our final verse, He heals all. Out of pure compassion, pure love, indiscriminately, common grace to all that we might behold the love of God. This was a final act of mercy on the crowds of Galilee. But it isn't free. Exposure to the truth comes at a cost. We are responsible for that light. We are accountable for the opportunities we've been given. And it's no different today. We have heard the Word. And we have heard the Gospel. And the Gospel by its very nature demands an answer. And whether some would admit it, an answer has already been given in your heart. Your heart either leaps for joy at the message, it fills you and it revitalizes you, or you reject this word. It is either the scent of life unto life or death unto death. And the disciples were hard-hearted. They didn't learn from the loaves and the fishes. Yet Jesus still came to them. And He got into the boat with them. And He gets into the boat yet again this morning. Finding us in our helpless estate, rowing to the end of our strength. He has open arms for all that will come in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, we are humbled by this text. We are humbled by the path that You put the disciples on. We are humbled by the moment that the scales fell from their eyes and they fell and worshipped You as the Son of God. Lord, I pray if anyone in here listening online or with us today has not fallen at Your feet in repentance and faith, as the Son of God, that today would be the acceptable day of salvation. Lord, we ask that this text would be buried deep 
in our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.